0: So it wasn't just an attempt yeah. to to recreate um, the Holy Roman Empire, to, to, to memorize, oh. just so in many fact, other factors involved.
1: A huge number of factors involved. And in fact, the Holy Roman Empire bit, the Holy Roman Empire is something that becomes something used in the 10th century. That's not how it was described in the 9th charlemagne when he was crowned emperor was emperor of the romans governor of the romans it wasn't he was being created as the recreation of a roman empire subsequently it was perceived as that and elaborated as that by people who were interested in creating this particular ideology and using it but when he was made emperor it was more a recognition of the strength of his rule imperium meant rule primarily um, they were aware of the roman emperors there's no mistake about that but it's not one of the main elements under charlemagne at least that's invoked as the model
0: what the, has, sorry. did charlemagne himself um write are there writings from charlemagne, like like napoleon if we're going back to napoleon who wrote and wrote and wrote. Did he write, Charlemagne? Do we have his writings?
1: Well, um, in a manner of speaking, we do. We do have some letters. We also have the capitularies and all the laws. And how much we think that these are him personally, or how much they are the fruit of consultation with a group of advisors, is something that people carry on arguing about. I think occasionally you can hear a voice, Or even a note of exasperation if people aren't following up his regulations or what he's told them to do. There's one very interesting letter from around 8.11 where he's writing to one of his officials in the north of the country saying, look, if you haven't understood what I told you last time, then get somebody to read it to you this time so you really do understand what I want you to do. So that there are elements, little elements here and there of the the very personal voice. But those capitularies done, if they are in, whether personally or in collaboration with his advisors, do enunciate an enormous set of regulations and things that he wants achieved, ways of organizing things, ways of keeping an eye on things. And he's setting up a really very powerful system of Communication right across his empire, where delegated power and delegated officials are actually trying to administer and sort out things on the ground.
0: Well, what, what is the capitulary? We want to focus now on the Jewish aspect of Charlemagne. Well, what exactly was yeah. that? And was that something different, unique, or a continuation of policies that he inherited?
1: Well, the To some extent, I think he's inheriting his father's attitude towards the Jews, which was essentially very similar to that that's enunciated in Roman law. In other words, let them get on with their religion. But what we do not want them doing is controlling Christians in any way. So they must have Christian slaves and their interaction with Christians um, needs to be such that it's not going to, mean that Christians suffer as a consequence. But as far as we can tell, I think one needs to backtrack a bit and think, well, how many Jews were there in the Carolingian Empire? That's one important question. And the second is what was the Carolingian knowledge of the Jews and Jewish history anyway? What kind of sense or perception of Jewish communities might they have had? Now in the first instance, we know really appallingly little We hear occasionally about Jews in Narbonne, which was the area taken over by, begun by Pippin, but actually succeeded in taking over under Charlemagne. And Narbonne and Aquitaine, where there were Jewish communities, we know there were Jews in Lyon, were certainly under Carolingian rule from then on. We know that also there was a community of Jews in Mainz, but that might have been a development slightly later in the early ninth century. as communities of people, we know very, very little. Occasionally, you get a reference to a particular individual, or you can guess at the existence of an individual. For instance, there's a man called Isaac, who is the man who comes with, uh, is part of the legation to Harun al Rashid, and is associated also with the knowledge of what to do about the elephant that Harun al Rashid sent as a gift. he he understood and it's thought that isaac might have been an interpreter who knew the languages that were necessary hebrew and arabic and could therefore as well as latin and could therefore be very useful as part of an embassy we also um, know that when theodore of orleans who was a very famous biblical scholar doing work on the edition of the bible he appears to have had contact with a jewish scholar and talking about the hebrew version of the bible We also know that one of the bishops of Agabard, uh, one of the bishops of Lyon a little bit later than Charlemagne really didn't like Jews at all, but he was taking one of the attitudes that was common among some Christians where simply the exegetical um, view of hostility towards the Jews was something that was preserved. But when you think of the diaspora of the Jews and how much might have been known, The knowledge that would have been gained was from history books they understood from fourth century history books or even more important a first century history book by a jew called josephus which had been translated into latin they knew an enormous amount about jewish history from the bible so what we don't know is the degree to which that knowledge of the jews in the bible was actually associated in people's minds with the jews with whom they were living who were conducting commerce in the big towns that's really what we don't know we've got nobody who enunciates the connection or says that there might have been now the other aspect of that is that the biblical scholarship of the carolingians was enormously important as well they knew their bible but what is particularly interesting for us is that the Biblical kings who are most important as models for the Carolingian rulers were King Solomon and King David. Mm -hmm. Those are the models that are important. And when they start talking about legislation, they invoke Moses. So that you have an enormous respect for an enormous amount of biblical history incorporated into this knowledge. Now, when we then come to this capitulary, it's not even certain, I'm afraid, that it's Charlemagne's. It may be later. Okay. it's um, certainly a very interesting text. It, it turns up, um, there are six clauses altogether, four of which are in one later manuscript, and two of them turn up in earlier manuscripts, the two which have this very strange oath that the, the Jews actually um, are supposed to swear. And at one level, it's basically saying that what we don't want the Jews doing is actually it was something i mentioned before we don't want them legally to take advantage of any christian what we do not want to happen is that no jew should take a pledge or debt or goods to do with the church so they're trying to as it were create a division between what jews do and what the christians do and they shouldn't actually overlap now that is based as far as we can tell on Pippin and then Charlemagne confirming that particular provision that the Jews could live under their own law. And that was something that had been said already in the Roman world in the sixth century. It's very, very general when it's first enunciated. It simply says, Pippin, that the people in Aquitaine, whether they're Franks or Romans, can live under their own law. Now, the Jews, as far as we know, were under Roman law so then later charlemagne respects what his father said and the jews are allowed basically to continue their own practices so as long as they're not infringing on christian things then they can live in their own communities
0: so 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 they had a level of uh, parallel in history i I guess we would now be in time of what we call the government period in babylon uh, a period of tremendous scholarship um, with with a certain level of autonomy, um, uh, tremendous autonomy. So it's a little different here. There, you can practice, but really, maybe because of the size of the community, the small size, there's not really this autonomous group doing whatever they want to do and, and judging people just according to their laws.
1: I I think so. I think the, the communities probably are very small, and the... The, the references we have to them certainly relate to commerce. So it may well be that you've got just a, a very few um, people in the community known, at least they're most prominent for doing commerce. They may, of course, have had lots of other skills. And very occasionally you hear about Jewish doctors and also scholars who are interested in biblical scholarship. And it's this um, lack of visibility could be interpreted negatively but it could also be interpreted positively there was not an enormous distinction made in any community between them they they got on with what they did themselves um and there's it's it's quite interesting when you think of the situation in spain where we know that there were muslims as well as jews as well as christians all living side by side and there are um there is legislation to make sure that there isn't intermarriage between these groups. There are legal problems if they they do intermarry. Um, but apart from that, it, it looks as if they have, a, a, well, a, a relatively degree of, of autonomy. We just can't pin it down very satisfactorily in the evidence we've got.
0: How, how, how do you teach the subject? Um, what's the message? That you try to convey to to young people today. Why, why should young people care and learn about medieval history and, and Charlemagne? And I'm, I'm asking it, you know, because you know, it's, it's, people ask, like, you know, Charlemagne, you know, and I, to me, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And and and, and those who, who get the book, it's really it's it's a, a detective story of trying to figure all the different sources and what's authentic and what's not and really how to write history. It's a book about writing history. So what's your message to young people today?
1: Well, you've just answered, <laughs> provided one. <wonderful answers. laughs> uh, I do think that historical study is something we, we need to do properly. Um, we, we have to see how far we can go with the evidence so that just as an historian, that is is one reason why but to focus on the early middle ages i think is really important because it's it's formative it's it's something that's so much a part of our western identity but we need to make sure we're not abusing it we need to make sure we've got it clear in our minds what was possible what wasn't possible It's it's a way of teaching people how to understand the past on its own terms, in its own right, in relation to the evidence that survives. It's also one of the aspects of studying history, wherever you are, and whatever aspect that fascinates you. I think that some things just make you interested. You're more interested in Alexander the Great than you are in Charlemagne. Um, I happen to find Alexander the Great very interesting as well. My sister was very interested in him. But nevertheless, it's this particular period that for some reason hits the spot. For other people, it's the 18th century or it's the Renaissance or it's 20th century nuclear disarmament. But all these things, for some reason, that aspect of the past is something to which they relate. Now. But it's all our past. And we have to understand all our past. And the other thing is, it's with us still. It's around us. In all our libraries and in all our museums, we have artefacts from two, 3,000 years of our history. We need to understand it. We need to look after it. It's our inheritance. It's what we pass on to the next generation. We can't all do everything. So we choose the things that mean something to us for whatever reason. Now, I spoke when I first started about the fascination of the books and the script. And one thing that's really important for me is that so much of our inheritance is through these texts. And we have to be able to continue to read them and look after them, to understand how they're produced, why people were producing them. So this is another aspect that these surviving manuscripts in all our libraries are something we really need to understand and look after and communicate that to the students that we're privileged to look after and i do find that as a way of teaching history that if you present to a student well here's a text what do you think go on you and i are in exactly the same position with this text i may know a bit more but you have a right to say something about what you think this text is trying to say that's exciting for a student They shouldn't study history only from secondary interpretations and arguments. They should be allowed to read the evidence for themselves. And the evidence for the Carolingian period is wonderful. It gives you so many different aspects of what's going on in society in every respect. And it's also a subject where you combine textual study with material study. You can encourage them to look at the art. You can go off and look at the archaeology. You can see the buildings and this way of studying history where every single scrap of surviving evidence has something to tell you is something else I think is important.
0: Thank you very, very much. It was fascinating and enlightening and I appreciate you taking your time today. Thank you very, very much.
1: It's been a pleasure, Ari. Thank you.